Oh, Lord, we need your help. We can become so conditioned to opening this book that we forget who, who wrote this book. This book was not written for our entertainment, but for our transformation. Use these words, your words, to transform us, to change the way we think, to change the way we view life, to change the way we view you. We've all heard sermons that did not land on us. That's not the fault of your word. That's the fault of our hearts. We were distracted. We were not fully engaged. We were not ready to process, digest, internalize your word. Let this not be one of those days. Would you eliminate distractions and focus our minds to receive your truth? May the simplicity of your word settle us in the next few moments. Do it for the glory of your name and the good of your people. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Paul, a first century follower of Christ, spent a year and a half in Corinth planning a church. Corinth was a city in modern-day Greece. Paul invested 18 months preaching the gospel, baptizing new converts, and setting up church leadership. After 18 months, they were no longer stumbling and falling. They had learned to walk with Christ. So Paul left, left to plant more churches. He turned over the reins to a younger pastor who in many ways was more gifted than him. He left the church in good hands. However, as soon as Paul was no longer in the room with them on Sundays, they started having problems. It's been three years since Paul's been there. And those three years have been filled with trouble. In writing this letter, Paul is counseling them, advising them, teaching them, encouraging them, correcting them. A lot of Christians look for a book to disciple someone. Here's a good one. Paul disciples the church from a distance. We are going to be introduced to the church and her challenges. We'll begin reading in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is urgently appealing to this church he says, I have a serious concern to bring up to you, brothers. The word brother here is comprehensive. It speaks of brothers and sisters, the whole church. Paul appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The full title heightens the seriousness. I want there to be no divisions among you. The Greek word divisions is schismata, where we get our English word schism. There is a schism in the church, a break. This is a church break. It's breaking not from the outside in, but from the inside out. The cause of the break is from those within the body. This division is nothing more than a vandalism of unity. The unity has been stolen by the division. There's a 
there's a gang of unity thieves running around the church. And Paul is concerned. How is it that those of you who have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ are divided? A church that is divided is a contradiction. Jesus said the church is one. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for his church. The prayer is recorded for us in John 17. Jesus prayed the church would be one as God the Father and God the Son are one. Jesus wanted a oneness for the church that reflected the oneness in the Trinity. Which leads us to our first truth. Our Lord is broken hearted by division in his church. Our Lord is broken hearted by division in his church. Division breaks the heart of our Lord because it says the wrong thing about him. Christ erases any reason for division among us. Christian unity is founded on the cross. We find ourselves side by side, arm in arm at the foot of the cross. The church, the church is at its best when they are on the battlefield fighting the enemy. The church is at its worst when they are in the barracks fighting one another. You can't have a church where everyone within it is insisting on their own preferences. Where envy, jealousy, discord, and clashing egos run wild, unity runs out. Division has always been a problem among God's people. Even Jesus' original 12 had times of division. Paul devotes nearly one-fifth of this letter to correcting division within the church. Some of you here this morning are non-Christians. When you non-Christians watch Christians divide and fight, you think, they can't even get along in the church. They can't even get along in Christ. Paul calls for harmony, not chaos. The, the gospel demands humility. Uh, how can you one-up someone while standing at the foot of the cross. Paul says, I want all of you to agree. Literally translated, say the same thing. Speak out of one mouth. Notice, it does not say that you agree to disagree. But that you say the same thing. No conscientious objectors allowed. I, I want you to cultivate a commonness. Always take the same side. Then he adds, I want you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity of thought and unity in purpose. He wants harmony in will and harmony in intentions. We arrive at truth number two. Godly unity displays Christ. So you need to cherish it and protect it. Godly unity displays Christ, so you need to cherish it and protect it. The church ought to be a place where harmony is displayed. Each one of you have the ability to destroy unity, and each one of you have the responsibility to preserve unity. Unity isn't something that can be faked. Just smile for the camera. When you non-Christians that are here, when you non-Christians 
see a church with real people that have real differences, but Jesus Christ is above all those differences? It stuns you, doesn't it? All these different people unite around this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It's not his brown skin that unites us. It's his sinless life. Non-Christian, God has designed it where you see our unity and then you fall under conviction of sin, repent, and run to Jesus Christ, this uniter. Now, Paul hasn't been at the church in Corinth for three years. So I'm asking the question, how did he find out about the division in the church? Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people <laughs> that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul was not informed by letter. They didn't have a postal system in that day. That's not exactly right. The military had a postal system, but the commoners didn't have access to the postal system. The only option the commoners had was to deliver the letter themselves or to get a friend to deliver it for them. And that's apparently what Chloe did. She was in the church at Corinth and she sent messengers to Paul in Ephesus. By sea, this would have been an eight-day travel. Paul says, they brought the most disturbing report to my attention. They, they dropped a bombshell on me. They told me you were, you were all toe-to-toe -to -toe slugging it out. The word quarreling here is only used by Paul in the New Testament. It means strifes. Fighting, debates, sparring, fisticuffs. Chloe was a tattletale. <laughs> Is this how we should view her? Putting her nose where it doesn't belong? Is she a snitch? Snitches get stitches, Chloe. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> or maybe we should view her as a gossip. I don't think either one of those are appropriate. Chloe did the right thing, bringing the division out in the light, refusing to sweep it under the rug. It took courage and devotion not to ignore what was going on in the church. She did this for the health of the church. Now, were there people who said, how dare you tell the spiritual leaders what is going on? Yeah, that probably happened. But bringing sin out into the open will never be a pleasant experience for the one who exposes it. FFC is not a church that shuns Chloe's, but appreciates Chloe's. Every local church needs an army of Chloe's. Those who do not minimize division and say something like, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. Notice that Paul did not hide who told him. He said her name. When they asked him how he found out, he didn't say, you know, I got eyes in the back of my head. <laughs> he, he didn't say, I can't say who told me. We, we don't do that. Everything is out in the open. Paul also takes Chloe's written letter or verbal message, whichever it was, as reliably informed information. He trusts her. He takes her word. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In other words, I'll tell you exactly what I was told. 
There are personality cults forming among you. There are factions, cliques. You, you are beginning to polarize behind your favorite teachers. Like Christianity is some sort of popularity contest. And they even had party slogans. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Let's take a look at each group. First, Team Paul. The Paul party is over here. This is for those still clinging to the ministry of the former pastor instead of embracing the new one. They just liked how Paul vibed. I mean, Paul, he was a blue-collar worker. He labored and toiled to start this church. His blood, sweat, and tears went into its founding. You could understand the loyalty some had to Paul. They championed Paul. They are loyalists. They hold on to the good old days. We, we came to Christ under the ministry of Paul. He's our guy. Team Paul, now Team Apollos. Apollos shows up right after Paul and pastored this congregation. He really grew the church. He was more eloquent than Paul. It may surprise you, but Paul was just an average preacher. Nothing to write home about. He says this of himself in 2 Corinthians eleven six. 6. I am unskilled in speaking. Apollos, on the other hand, Acts 18.24 says of him that he was an eloquent speaker and mighty in the scriptures. Some in the church at Corinth were saying, oh, Paul's sermons never had enough Greek verb tenses in it for me. I'm an Apollos guy. I've transferred my allegiance to Apollos. He's educated. He's young. He's got a golden mouth. He's just a legendary orator. Team Paul, Team Apollos, Team Peter. Cephas is another name for Peter. He's the rock. He's the only fundamentalist in the group. There's no record of Peter ever visiting Corinth like the previous two. But Peter's reputation preceded him. He's been a Christian longer than Paul and Apollos. He's old and wise. He spent more time with Christ than either of the other two. In fact, who spent more time with Christ than Peter? No one. Imagine him telling all those stories about Christ healing and multiplying the food. Peter has seen it all. Peter is a pillar of the church. We are having a Peter party over here. Come and join us. He's got the most pizzazz. I mean, sure, he says some crazy stuff sometimes. He has a foot-shaped mouth, but you'll never wonder what he's thinking. <laughs> Since Chrysostom in the 4th century, pastors like me have tried to identify these three groups, pigeonhole them, distinguishing between them and psychologizing the text on why certain people chose them over the other groups. And I think it's really just overplayed by interpreters. What's not overplayed is this. The Paul crowd, the Apollos crowd, and the Peter crowd were personality driven. The church was showing signs of troubling tribalism. Weird clannishness. Well, my leader is better than your leader. Tweeting out nasty things about the other party. 
throwing out an avalanche of speculative suggestions. You've heard of cancel culture? This is it. In the church. Paul, you're canceled. Apollos, you're canceled. I ride with Peter. These groups each spin elaborate theories about the others. And Paul chides the church for lionizing various leaders. Your sectarian view is unhealthy. And Faith Family Church, I, I want to point out to you that there was no beef between these three men. There was an imagined beef that the people are creating. None of these three men are party to the quarreling. This is being created on the sheep level, not the shepherd level. These pastoral tribes were not started by the pastors. Now some have tried to compare this division to the denominational structure in the U.S. I'm Baptist, I'm Methodist, I'm Pentecostal. I think that's a poor application of this verse for two reasons. The first reason, this division is within the same local church, not within evangelical Christendom. The second reason, this division is not doctrinal. The denominational divisions are doctrinal, and they are needed because some of those groups espouse horrible theology. Paul, Apollos, and Peter all had the same doctrine. They all believed in election. They all believed in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. This division in Corinth is not around the teacher's doctrine, but around the teacher's style. Not doctrine-centered, but personality-centered. They divided not along theological lines, but stylistic lines. One academic researcher said, the smoke of division does not necessarily imply the fire of doctrine. And I must, must agree. Beloved, are you creating tribes within the same doctrine? Are you creating tribes within the same doctrine? We can get factionalized in a local church. We can get factionalized in Reformed theology. We can get factionalized within the same doctrine. Um, I'm of John MacArthur. I'm of Alistair Begg. I'm of John Piper. I'm of Doug Wilson. I'm of Nine Marks. I'm of Vadi Bauckham. It's cantankerous party zeal that leads to a war of words. It's creating strife within the same doctrine. It's elevating style preferences over unity. It's focusing on personality. Temperament, ability, gifts, instead of doctrine. It's troubling tribalism. And beloved, do not let it enter this church. You, you don't create pastoral tribes within the same doctrine. Well, I'm in the J-Mac tribe. I'm in the Piper tribe. I'm in the Paul Tripp tribe. With videos and books and Twitter, we are more prone than ever to say, I am of talking at one another instead of to one another. These factions and tribalisms don't belong in the church. Pitting pastoral personalities against one another is carnal. And Paul never grew tired 
of insisting on spiritual maturity in the church. Beloved, I can ask the questions, but only you can answer them. Here's another one. Are you contributing to the Christian celebrity culture by giving inappropriate allegiance to religious leaders? Are you contributing to the Christian celebrity culture by giving inappropriate allegiance to religious leaders? Corinth was a celebrity culture. The attention and awe that we lavish on movie stars and athletes and YouTube influencers, they lavished on these gospel preachers. We have a way of lifting popular elements from the culture and baptizing them into the church. In the States, we've created a Christian celebrity culture. We even have ways for people to follow you on social media. Christians are elevated like rock stars. The same thing was happening in Corinth. Friend, the message is more important than the messenger. Paul takes this church to task for their wrong estimation of leaders. There is a danger in exalting ministers, leaders, pastors, elevating them to unhealthy places in your mind or declaring exclusive loyalty to an individual teacher. Inappropriate adoration to mere men is dangerous. I do something quite regularly in my sermons and I'm curious to know if any of you have picked up on. I will quote some theologian or some theologically sound pastor and then I will tell you that I disagree with him in this area. Why do I do that? Because I want you to learn from these men but not lionize them. Not form personality cults around them. I want you to have the correct view of them. Don't make celebrities out of gospel preachers. Let them labor with very little praise of men, but very many rewards from God. By the way, this can also happen with your pastors. It is right. It is right to have affection for someone who has counseled you, loved you, and fed the word to you. But it is, a, it is a sin to worship them. I'm a preacher. So I realize the over-attention gospel speakers sometimes receive. Some people will idolize you even if you try to keep them from it. Don't make more of the messenger than the message. Obey 1 Thessalonians 5. Esteem your pastors very highly in the Lord. But do not worship them. Now let me give you a quick sidebar. Any pastor who wants the allegiance that only belongs to God, he's a charlatan and get away from him. Now a word to the, uh, to the Peter only crowd. The Peter only crowd. Those that said, Peter is our man. Friend, Peter is not your pastor. Apollos is. Peter isn't walking through life with you. Apollos is. Peter doesn't know your name. You need a local pastor, not one you've never met. The church members are saying, I am of Peter. I follow Peter. We have no record of Peter ever being in Corinth. I wonder what Pastor Apollos was thinking about all this. This situation leads me to make this plea. Don't pant after pastors that don't know your name. 
Love those pastors who labor to feed you week in and week out. Don't pant after pastors who don't know your name. Love those pastors who labor to feed you week in and week out. Your elders are not John MacArthur, John Piper, Tim Keller, or Kevin DeYoung. Your elders are Kyle Sharon, Daniel Hurd, and Dan Herbster. You don't need an internet pastor. You need a local pastor. YouTube, it's a bad place to go to church. <laughs> Years ago, a group of people began gathering and listening to David Platt and, and John Piper on the internet. After a while, they realized they needed a pastor, a flesh and blood pastor, a local pastor. So Andy, who used to be a member of our church, stepped in and pastored them. Later, Andy wrote an article entitled, Platt wasn't enough for my church. I echo that sentiment. You need real life elders. We've had people in this church move here from John Piper's church and Tim Keller's church. You know why they are here on Sunday morning and not merely podcasting their old pastors? Because I'm better than those guys. <laughs> no, because they need real life pastors. Daniel Hurd in the flesh is better than Paul Washer on a screen. Let your favorite preachers be your elders. Those are the ones who will be with you in the hospital. Those are the ones who will bury you. Those are the ones who will counsel you. You don't need a podcast pastor. You need a local pastor. Because of the transient nature of our church, people tell me all the time, I now live in Georgia, but you're still my pastor. I now live in Cali, but you're still my pastor. They are meaning to compliment me, but I always tell them that's unhealthy. You need to find a local church there and find pastors that lead and feed you. Team Paul, Team Apollos, Team Peter, now Team Christ. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This is the group you want to be a part of, right? They furl the flag of Christ. Well, I don't think so. Kyle, how could you belittle a group that pledges loyalty to Christ? Well, because this crowd labeled themselves the super spiritual group. I belong to Christ. Trumping all those other teams. They are the most sanctimonious. This is what I call a, a Jesus juke. This is the most arrogant group of all. We take our instructions from Christ alone. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I'm above all that. I'm in the Jesus only crowd. You ever met these people? The Lord told them everything. They claim a monopoly on Christ. Always more spiritual. Always more tuned in. But behind it all is a spiritual superiority fueled by fierce individualism. This group thinks they don't need a Paul or a Peter or their current pastor, Apollos. They don't need spiritual authority. See, three sides overemphasize church leadership and the other just disrespected it altogether. It's the two extremes of Christianity. I don't, I don't need the church. 
It's just me and Jesus. Jesus is in the boat with me on Sunday. No, he's in corporate worship. You, you don't answer to anyone, huh? Is there anyone that can correct you? No? Just you and Jesus? Are you accountable to any community? No. Just me and Jesus. I don't listen to Paul. Only Jesus. Who is Paul? Only the guy that preached the gospel to you. <laughs> Apollos, the local pastor, I don't need him. I'm, I'm more organic in my walk. I don't like his structured religion. These people have no respect for spiritual authority. They are arrogant and proud and are hyper-spiritualist and they're unbiblical. You don't want to have too low a view of leadership or too high a view of leadership. This group always seems to use the name of Christ to promote their cause. Always using the name of Christ to win an argument or to further bolster their position. In the church, there is no place for endless games and self-promotion to prove your superiority over other people. Now, I'm bouncing back and forth between biblical, historical, and practical, but here I need to give you some historical light that will make this text come alive for you. When you think of the culture of Corinth seeping into the church, you may think of it only in terms of sexual promiscuity. But there's more than one way for Corinth to seep into the church. There's more than one way for Corinth to seep into the church. A party spirit reigned in Corinth. Now that's true in two ways. A party spirit like, hey, let's party and get drunk and get in all kinds of sin, that way. But also a party spirit politically and philosophically. Political parties in the ancient world were named after individuals. I am of, fill in the blank with the political figure. I follow, list the name, and that was their political slogans. Secular philosophies were also named after individuals. I am of Aristotle. I am of Epicurus. I follow Marcus Aurelius. So you see the city's slogans working their way into the church. Corinth was a city of orators. Corinth was filled with pagan philosophers and poets, and they made their living making speeches. The common folk lavished praises on them for their stunning abilities. All over Corinth, philosophers shared their wisdom, peddled their wares, and gained followings. People gathered like groupies around their leader. Swayed by the artistry of the speaker, people would declare exclusive loyalty to an individual philosopher. You had these political and philosophical orators leading their own factions, their own cliques, their own groupies. And sometimes it could get heated. Uh, Philostorus, he was a Greek sophist and, or philosopher about 100 years after our text. He relates on one occasion the pupils of a sophist became so incensed at insults being heaped on their teacher that they ordered their slaves to beat a rival orator who subsequently died. The factions around these philosophers set off violent rivalries. 
Competition was fierce and debates were heated. Some would attempt to sabotage other teachers. One scholar said there were as many as 50 identifiable philosophical parties or movements in the city. Do you see now how these Christians carried the cultural arrogance into the church? They broke off into teams wearing their jerseys on Sunday. The culture, let me just put it in our culture here. Um, not our culture, maybe in the 90s. The, the culture wore shirts, I'm of Biggie, I'm of Tupac. And that worked its way into the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. The culture of Corinth crept into their church. Could it creep into FFC? The culture of Corinth crept into their church. Could it creep into ours? They took the sickness of their culture and brought it through the doors of the church. The same mores that governed the city began to govern the church. Orators, communicators, philosophers, these were, these were their version of social commentators. And we still have social commentators today. On the right, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Ben Shapiro, and Coulter Tucker Carlson. On the left, we have Rachel Maddow, Michael Moore, Anderson Cooper. These are all social commentators of our day speaking to the daily issues in society. There are lots of listeners and fans and groupies that are very loyal to them. And they're all selling their philosophies. That's been happening. It's been happening for centuries. And the people began worshiping these philosophers, hanging on to their every word, talking more about their words than God's word. Going to their words to understand the culture instead of God's word. A party spirit was a common fact of life in Corinth and they brought it into the church. The, the city followed the poets and philosophers based on their rhetorical competence, their technical skill at language. The Corinthian culture was fascinated with rhetoric and, and the creativity of human beings. They loved persuasive orators. Soon the church started looking at gospel preachers in that light, like they were nothing more than rival heads over various schools of philosophy, judging them on their graces of diction. A spirit of partisanship took over the church. Personality cults in the city led to personality cults in the church. They had a party-minded spirit. And this can work its way into our church in many ways. We can become fierce evangelists for a political candidate or a diet or a method of education. I hear Christians say, Christians, I hear Christians say, I'm of Jordan Peterson. I'm of Joe Rogan. I'm of Elon Musk. I'm of fill in the blank with your favorite political commentator. Beloved, these people are pagan. They are pagan. You are not of them. They are bad places to get your theology. Don't be their groupies. The Corinthians were thirsty to hear a pagan's viewpoint on life. Diogenes, 
a Greek philosopher and one of the founders of cynicism, reported that he was escorted into the city with much enthusiasm and respect and the citizens were begging him to address them. They flocked around his door from early dawn to end of day. <laughs> That's the picture of some Christians with today's philosophers. Don't flock at their doors. Flock at the doors of people who give you good theology. At least the church at Corinth were fighting over people who believed the Bible. Secular discipleship and Christian competitiveness. That's this text. Secular discipleship and Christian competitiveness. You at all times are being discipled. It's just a matter of who you are allowing to disciple you. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is scandalized by the presence of party politics in the body of Christ. And so he gives three short biting questions. Ludicrous questions. Three rhetorical questions that reveal how crazy this situation is. This is Paul's reductio ad absurdum. Which is a mode of argumentation which assumes your opponent is right. And then logically you tease out their arguments to its natural conclusion which show how absurd it is. Paul's three questions. Question number one, is Christ divided? Has Jesus been broken up into pieces? If Christ isn't divided, why are you divided? Jesus is the uniter, not the divider. He unites people from many different backgrounds and preferences. Jesus came to divide sheep from goats, not sheep from sheep. He unites sheep to sheep. Why is the body of Christ torn apart by the followers of Christ? Paul's second question, was Paul crucified for you? He's referring to himself in the third person. I think this is my favorite line of Paul in the entire Bible. He zeroes in on the splinter group that made him their hero. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't worship me. Stop putting my face on t-shirts and soda cans. May I decrease and Christ increase. I don't remember being born of a virgin. I don't remember uh, living a sinless life and dying as a substitute for you. This reminds me of Martin Luther. When he heard that, that some of the first Protestants were being called Lutherans, he protested saying, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where the people call the children of Christ by my evil name? End quote. Now that's a good word. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. My mother used to teach me all the time, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I grew up in a great home. <laughs> I just came back from a conference in Cali, and it was good. It helped me. I was refreshed, good doctrine, good friends, good time. In the conference, one of the speakers said, of the host pastor... He said this of the host pastor. 5% of this man 
is worth more than all evangelicalism combined. 5% of this man is worth more than all evangelicalism combined. Talk like that is not only just ignorant, but it's creating troubling tribalism. And what I wanted to hear from that host pastor was for him to look at everyone there and say, did I die for you? Did I redeem you from your sins? Paul says, your fascination with me has gone too far. I may be the vehicle in which you came to Christ, but he's the destination. Paul wanted no cult built around him. He wants no part in their petty rivalries. Paul stands and yells, the presence of Jesus makes our feast. It's not me. The minute you start giving me what belongs to Jesus, I will call you out. Paul's third question. <laughs> Again, it's funny. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? Matthew 28, 19 clearly informs us that baptism is Trinitarian in name. Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul asks, hey, did it, did it go like this for you? I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Paul, and the Spirit. <laughs> Buried with Paul in baptism. Raised to walk with Paul in newness of life. No. You're not baptized into a man. You're baptized into the Trinity. And maybe they thought the status of the person that baptized them trickled down to them. Maybe they had loyalty to the one who baptized them. Some scholars say that explains the the divisional loyalty. Running around in little t-shirts that said, I got baptized by Paul. I got baptized by Apollos. Little tattoos that said, Dan Herbster baptized me. <laughs> Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> now, that's what, you, that's what you want to hear from your former pastor. I thank God that I baptized none of you. <laughs> Except for Gaius, who seems to be the guy in whose home the church met, and Crispus, the, the leader of the synagogue Paul went to to preach the gospel. Both of those guys were converted, and Paul baptized them. You can read their stories in the book of Acts. You might be thinking, Paul had a lot more converts in Corinth than those two. Why, why didn't he baptize his own converts? Well, he evidently let Timothy or Silas or Luke do the majority of the actual immersing in water. He delegated most of his baptisms. The exceptions, seemingly, are those who were the first to come to Christ in Corinth. And I like the end of verse 16. Paul has a little senior moment. I baptized... None of you, except Gaius and Crispus, but that's it. Oh, yeah, I did baptize that other guy and, and uh, some other people in that house. Honestly, it's a bit hazy, but you get the point. It wasn't the majority of what I did. The memory lapse may show that Paul dictated his letters without revising them. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Let's stop here. 
Before we dig into the whole verse, I want to point out that the last five verses have given us a theology of baptism. And we might quickly back up and consider all these verses collectively to make sure we have a correct view of baptism. It seems some people in the church at Corinth had a wrong view of baptism. And we do not want that to happen to us. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 13. That question assumes baptism. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? That question assumes baptism. An unbaptized believer is a misnomer, an oxymoron, a conflict of terms. Paul did not have a category for a person in the church not baptized. We know that because he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Knowing that they were all baptized in the name of the Trinity. Paul assumed that all the believers to whom he wrote were baptized and he based important parts of his teaching upon this belief. Romans 6.3, Colossians 2.12, verse 16, Paul baptized the household of Stephanus. Our Presbyterian friends point to this verse and others like it to support infant baptism. Church, how many children are baptized in this verse? Let's count them together. One, none. Some groups assume or infer little babies were in the household and therefore baptized. If a verse said Paul circumcised the household of Stephanus, it would mean, of course, only the males, not the females. I think this means only those who are old enough to make a profession of faith. That's consistent with the rest of the Bible. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. At first glance, this sounds like a radical downplaying of baptism. But Paul's not minimizing baptism, rather putting it in its proper place. Paul wasn't sent on a baptizing tour, but a preaching tour. Don't put baptism on the same level as faith. He's telling you baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism was an initiation rite. Uh, it symbolized a transition or passage into the community of faith. Paul clearly viewed baptism as a, as a public symbol for who was in and who was out. Paul did not teach baptismal regeneration. Those who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, like the Catholic Church and the Church of Christ, I don't know what they do with this verse. Paul is saying the preaching of the gospel is primary. Baptism isn't primary. The gospel is primary. If baptism had anything to do with your salvation, it would have been primary. If Paul thought that baptism was a part of your salvation, how cruel of him not to be about it. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, verse 14. Jesus didn't send me to baptize, verse 17. It's easy to read this like Paul is denigrating baptism. But you can't use this statement to denigrate baptism. Some Christian groups have made baptism so peripheral that it's, that it's almost treated as an optional afterthought. Helpful but not vital. And that's not what Paul is intending. He's rejecting their inflated view of the importance of who baptized them. They were using who baptized them as bragging chips. And Tom Schreiner nails it when he says, the person who performed the baptism is utterly insignificant. 
By paying attention to the person who baptized them, they were missing out on the true importance of baptism. Paul is minimizing the performative celebrity aspect of baptism, not the act of baptism. He's not saying baptism doesn't matter, but instead, who baptized you doesn't matter. And, and you might ask, well, is Paul being disobedient here to the Great Commission? Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commanded in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Did Jesus call Paul to a different mission than us? One that didn't involve baptism? Well, first, note that Paul's comment about not being sent to baptize immediately follows a list of people in Corinth whom he had baptized. Paul himself was baptized. He's saying, I'm for biblical baptism. But you guys are taking it to an unbiblical level. That's the thought here. That's the way I feel about some churches that always boast about their number of baptisms. Just because you reaped numerous baptisms doesn't mean they are true conversions. How many are, are still in the church six years later? I'm for biblical baptism. But you guys are taking it to an unbiblical level. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now here's an important question. What is the gospel? What is it that Paul preached? Paul preached the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God made all things good, we broke it bad, and God made a way that it could be good again through Christ's atoning work on the cross. You have offended a holy God. And the only way to be saved is to bow before this Christ and his claims. This is what Paul preached. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You can see Paul's argument has started to slip away, so he gets back on track. Verse 17. How's he preaching this gospel? And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul did not, preach in a, did not preach the gospel in a way that the Corinthians would buy into it by his clever delivery. Piper said eloquence can nullify the cross. You can attract so much attention to yourself and your abilities that the offense of the cross is lost. Paul wasn't concerned with rhetorical brilliance or argumentative competence. He places substance over style. Paul wasn't a gifted speaker. He wasn't. One time he was preaching and there was a guy listening on a second story window ledge. And the guy fell asleep. And fell out of the window. And died. His name is Eutychus. One of my favorite preaching books is entitled Saving Eutychus. It's good. You think I preach too long, and maybe I do. I've had people fall asleep during my preaching, but never die. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is a whole new level. Paul did not cultivate an entertaining style of preaching, dazzling his hearers with clever rhetoric. He's not about oratory showmanship. Now, I want to season that with a little common sense. Paul is speaking about unadorned speech. 
He's not saying a preacher should be intentionally boring. God help you if you preach the gospel with no passion. It is a passionate plea. This does not mean you can never tell a joke or ever tell a personal story. Oh, don't you ever make anyone laugh. That's just asinine. And I reject that with every fiber of my being. This does not mean you can't say things in a memorable way. It doesn't mean you can't have good sentence structure or grammar. Martin Lloyd-Jones said preaching is truth through personality. Paul isn't saying suppress your personality. I, I work to be polished here. But I desire to be polished not because the polishedness brings the power. I do not want to be distracting in my unpolishedness. Corinth valued eloquence. Leaders were expected to speak persuasively and convincingly. Put on display the power of oratory skills. But in preaching, that renders the cross of no effect. The gospel doesn't depend on the cleverness of your speech. The goal is not to have them look up to you in awe, but rather look up to Christ in awe. Human brilliance is antithetical to the cross. It, it makes the cross lose its power. Not that it can actually lose its power. The point is, the amount, no amount of trendiness will ever save a human soul. Those of you that are non-Christians, I, I never come in here thinking like, man, if I really do it good today, that's going to convince them to be a Christian. No, I, I'm, I'm resting not in the power of my oratory skills, but in the power of the gospel itself. Rhetorical flashiness saves no one. When the cross is removed from its central place in preaching, you've sacrificed the power of God. The power of the gospel cannot be mixed with manipulative persuasion. It's the gospel who saves, not the preacher's delivery of the gospel. The preacher, the, the, the power, is not in the delivery of the message but in the message itself. We, we glory in this gospel no matter who preaches it. And those of you that are Christians and non-Christians, let me just speak to both of you. All kinds of teachers will seek to suck you into their vortex. Make sure you are valuing substance over delivery. You can preach in such a way that promotes the messenger and obscures the cross. It, it promotes the messenger and obscures the cross. May God rescue us from this. Father, unite us in harmony. Help this church to never be known for division or troubling tribalism. Keep the cross center in our preaching, singing, and teaching. Father, in your sovereignty... You planned for us to hear this text this day. This was the food we needed. The correction we needed. The outlook we needed. I would have never chosen this text for this day. But you chose this text for this day. This text has matured us in Christ. Thank you for growing us by your word. Amen.